During the season of Advent, we'll be reading through the birth narrative of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. So today we'll read in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, of the, the prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. As we enter into a season when we, in many ways, focus on the, the incarnation of Christ and the birth of Christ, you should recognize that Christ was not born as the beginning of the story of redemption. Rather, he came to fulfill what God had already been doing for some time. He came at the fullness of time, but God had already been at work. He didn't come alone either, but there was one that prepared his way, both in birth and in life. And so in order to best understand the context into which Christ was born, you also have to understand the role of John the Baptist. 
if you're aware of the covenant history of God's people, of the promises of God that we have throughout scripture, uh, scripture, uh, I'd say scripture, <laughs> if you're aware of redemptive history, right, the, the history of God's people and all that he's done, then when you hear some of the first words of this story, the end of that first paragraph, you know what's going to happen. But they had no child, it says, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Scripture is full of that story. Right? The seeking of a seed, the offspring of the woman, the one promised to Adam and Eve. And into that promise, that thread of a story comes the earthly reality of barrenness. So often, God does what seems on the earthly level to be impossible. Sarah laughed at the idea that she could bear a child in her old age, and yet Isaac, the child of promise, came through her. Here in this story, Zechariah is so disbelieving that his wife could bear a child that even when Gabriel, an angel, speaks to him, he still says, how am I going to know that it's going to happen? Right? He's actually judged for that because he didn't believe. Because there's an angel in front of him telling, an angel from heaven tells him what's going to happen. And he says, but I want to be sure. <laughs> how, how can you tell me for sure it's going to happen? Isn't that enough? We read earlier from the prophet Isaiah that the whole of Israel, out of whose womb, so to speak, the Messiah was supposed to come, was seen in her exile as a kind of a barren woman. The people were under judgment, and just like with Sarah, it seemed laughable that God would work through these people that were scattered and were judged, and that he would work through them to call all the nations of the earth to himself. But that's exactly what he did. So Elizabeth now becomes a part of that story, that thread that you see working all the way through Scripture. And Zechariah is told that he will have a son, that his name will be John. And he's to be set aside as a Nazarite. He's supposed to prepare the way for the bridegroom of Israel to come. He's not the one himself. He's one that's coming to prepare the way for another speaking of those redemptive threads, that this story brings all of these things together as they focus in on Christ. Even here you see another one of those threads. It wasn't that long ago that we uh, worked through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, Malachi. We also worked through the book of Isaiah recently. But we worked through the book of Malachi. It's the very last of the prophets. And we're told that uh, Malachi was in, in... in many ways, the last word from God for some time, for 400 years, until the coming of John the Baptist, the last word that God gave through a prophet to Israel was to Malachi. And what were the very last words that God gave to the people at that time? He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
That's the last words that God spoke to the people before the coming of John. And now what does Gabriel say to Zechariah? What does he say about this child that Elizabeth is going to bear? And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John came to prepare the people for the day of the Lord, the coming of the one that was promised from ages past. Likewise, even for us today, he continues to prepare us helping us to see who Jesus truly was. Even in his birth, we begin to see some of those redemptive threads all working together, closing in on Christ himself, Emmanuel, God with us. So let us then recognize and receive that same angelic message. Once again, we are back in Matthew chapter 6. We'll be reading verse 9 to 13, especially focusing on uh, verse 11. Hear this word of the Lord. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. The petition, give us this day our daily bread, is the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. It's the fourth request made of God in the prayer. We've already worked through the first three petitions. We talked about how they're all focused heavenward. They're focused on what God is accomplishing or doing, his purposes, right? That he would be glorified, that his kingdom of grace would continue to grow, and that he would accomplish in us all that is his will. And with this fourth petition, things begin to focus more on your needs, the things that you need, Uh, on a personal level, on an individual level, though it's not uh, purely individual as we pray to our Father and even today for our daily bread, yet it focuses more on your needs, those things that you need from God. And bread might not be something that you think of as a need, but especially in Jesus' day, even now in many places around the world, but especially in the ancient world, bread was the staple. It it was the staple food. It's the thing that you most need. It's the most common and regular food that you would eat. It's central to your diet. Now, I think it's important that we continue to translate this as bread to be faithful to the text, to be faithful to the the symbolic context of Scripture. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in the sermon. But you could almost just translate this, or when you hear it, maybe you should think of it as give us this day that which we need. 
Give us this day that which we need. What do you need to simply bodily survive? That's what this prayer is for. Our Father, provide for us that which we need today to live. That's what Jesus is teaching you to pray. Why would Jesus teach you to pray that way? Why does he do that? Well, there are at least three things that when you truly pray this prayer, not just, not just with your lips, but when you truly pray it with your heart, there are three things that this prayer teaches you. There are three things primarily that you will learn in praying this prayer, three primary truths. The first is that through praying for our daily bread, you learn dependence on God. It teaches you to be dependent on God. Your daily bodily sustenance is a gift of God. Your day-to-day existence comes from your Father in heaven. The mystery of life is not a mystery. It's been revealed, and it is in God that we live and move and have our being. And in prayer for God to provide those things which are necessary day-to-day to support your life, you're meant to learn dependence upon Him. What are your most basic needs? The most basic needs that you have uh, simply to continue living. Food, water, we might add shelter to some extent. And where do these things come from? They don't come from you. Not directly. That's not to say that you're not involved in, in procuring these things. You're not active in some way. But you're not the source of it all. Your food comes externally from you it has to grow it has to be butchered it has to be collected it's it's outside of you and that seems like such an obvious statement right admittedly that seems like well of course (laughs) but but we should learn from that the fact that everything that we need to keep living has to come from outside of us should teach us dependence, right? You have to collect, maybe preserve or store or raise or plant, but you didn't make the soil that your vegetables are grown in. You didn't create the the processes of decomposition. Maybe you mixed things to create more fertile soil, but all of this you got from somewhere else. All of it came externally to you. You don't give the sun and its light that causes things to grow. You maybe own some animals, but you didn't create cows or or pigs or sheep. You didn't create the grass, the wheat, the corn, the barley. Each of these has to first exist for you to use it to sustain yourself. And all of that is to say that, that all of your food is given all of it. You're dependent upon food, and all food is something that you depend on God to provide. The same is true of water. It's God who makes it rain on the just and unjust alike. 
It's God who created the natural processes where we have snow that melts and gives us fresh water, right? It's, it's him who forms the, the fresh water sources that we have. You use water, but you don't create it. You might separate salt from water, but you didn't make it, right? You can maybe combine hydrogen and oxygen in a lab, but you don't create hydrogen and oxygen. It had to be there. Right? Do you understand what I'm, what I'm saying? I know, it's, I know it's obvious. I know that, of course, that's true. But you need to sit in that for a little while. You can't live day to day without someone else providing the very things that you need to exist. Even shelter, the ability to keep from exposure to the elements, this comes from outside of you. You need trees and stone and clay and whatever else you might use. And it's given to you, not created by you. The point is that to pray for your daily bread is to teach you your dependence upon God. It helps to pull back the veil of modern industrial progress and wealth to show you that at the most fundamental level, your needs are only met when God provides them for you. Everything that you have, everything that you need. We pray that God would give us this day our daily bread because it's from him. It's his to give. And we can only receive. On its most basic level, everything is derived from him as its source. He is the fountainhead from which all of your life springs forth. Not just the fact that you are alive, but that you continue to live. It all comes from him. If he doesn't provide what you need, it doesn't matter how much you work. It doesn't matter how ingenious you are. It doesn't matter how strong and powerful you believe yourself to be. You will simply die. You need him. You have to rely on him, consciously or unconsciously, for everything. When you pray, give us this day our daily bread, it is to make you conscious of that reality to make you conscious of your total and absolute dependence upon him. It teaches you to look to God for what you need. I mentioned that, you know, daily bread is speaking of those things which we most need, right, bodily to exist. But it's important that we continue to use that word bread, even if you don't think of bread as like the thing that keeps me going every day. Because of the, the overall symbolic value that you find of bread and scripture. Because just like everything else in creation, it helps direct us toward the higher reality in Christ himself. Learning your dependence upon God for bodily existence, for daily bread, is the beginning of learning that you're dependent on him for spiritual life as well. You're dependent on him for eternal life as much as earthly life. We need 
daily earthly bread. We pray to God for that because a starving man can't usually think of the higher spiritual realities, right? I don't mean hunger. I just mean actually starving, right? If you don't have the things that you most need, it's all you'll be able to think of. We have to have those things that support our earthly life so that we can better direct ourselves toward heavenly life. And this text is about earthly bread most, most fundamentally. But all earthly bread should remind us of the bread that God has provided from heaven. The manna that came directly from him to his people in the wilderness. It should remind you of your ultimate dependence on him. It should remind you of Jesus' words when he tells the devil that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It should direct us to Jesus as he says that he is the bread that comes down from heaven and that anyone to have eternal life must eat his body, drink his blood. In other words, there is symbolic value and i use the word symbol sometimes we think of something that's symbolic is not real or less real um, it's like an idea but it's not real but know that everything is symbolic the whole of the world is symbolic right it all comes from god's speech his words and all of it in some way points to him it directs us to him it points beyond itself to him bread does that there's symbolic value in praying daily for God to provide for us our needs because it directs us to our ultimate dependence, body and soul, for his provision. Everything you need for body, for soul, comes from him. And that doesn't make that the daily bread, our, you know, our daily sustenance, any less important. Right? It makes it more important because it's that beginning point in looking beyond it. It gives an importance and a dignity to our daily food and our daily water. That with each bite and with each sip, we're recognizing that everything we are and have comes from God. All of it is a gift. All of it is his grace. So through praying, give us this day our daily bread. Through praying for our daily bread, you are to be learning dependence. It teaches you dependence upon God. Secondly, through praying for our daily bread, you learn contentment. Praying this prayer teaches you contentment with what God has provided. We're told that godliness with contentment is of great gain. And seeing everything as the gift of God, something that he gives, allows you to receive what he has given and not be envious or covetous for more. It teaches you the good of moderation as God has given things. And contentment is hard. Right? Wouldn't you agree with that? To be content with what God has given. This is hard. You're surrounded by a world that's constantly teaching you to be discontent with what you have. Right? There's always something better. There's always someone better for you. There's always more that you should have. Everything's unfair if you don't have what you most want. You also have a natural and inborn sinful tendency to simply want more and more. 
right? To desire more than God has given. And that is a sinful tendency, but, uh, but it's sinful because it's twisted, right? Because it's the twisting of your desire. It's, it's adding in that, that discontentment. But there is a, an element of your desire that is actually good. It's actually a characteristic of what it means to, to be made by God for God. You're wired as a human uh, to, in a sense, have your body acclimate to whatever level of joy and enjoyment and pleasure that you have. Right? You've experienced this, right? You, you have some kind of, of great experience, whether it be you know, in whatever area that we have sensation. Right? Maybe you taste some kind of food that you're like, this is the best thing I've ever eaten. And now forever, everything else that you eat, you see in light of that. Right? Or you have some kind of thrilling experience. And now anything else that you do, you, you think, wow, I just, compared to that, it's not the same. And that's actually how you're supposed to be to a point. Because you're made to enjoy God forever, to continue uh, growing in your knowledge and enjoyment of him forever. Right? Each, each new day, experiencing him afresh all the more growing in your ability to enjoy him. And that's good, right? Knowing his goodness and grace more and more. But then that's twisted. It's twisted by sin, and it twists into a kind of discontentment, right? You're discontent with what he's given you now, right? You want more now. You want more on your timeline. You're discontent with the pleasure or joy or status or wealth or authority that he has given you at this moment. The sin is the discontentment with what God has given you, thinking that you should have or that you deserve more than what he's graciously given. And it's into the discontentment of your heart, that, that twisted desire, and it's into the discontentment of this dark world that Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's not a prayer for you know, wild amounts of wealth beyond belief. It's not a prayer to suddenly win the lottery or you know, find out you have this inheritance that's coming to you that you didn't know about and now everything's going to be fine. It's not a prayer for a massive raise at work. It's not a prayer for the ability to buy whatever you want or drive whatever you want or live wherever you want for things to be easy. It's not a prayer for the American dream, for solid retirement, for comfort all your days. He does not teach us to pray for that. It's not a health and wealth prosperity prayer. It's a prayer for daily bread. For bread. He teaches you to pray for bread. When you pray, pray that God would provide what you need. What you need to get by and then be content. Now that doesn't mean that you can never ask God for more. Right? It doesn't mean that you know, perhaps you're in a position where you have 20 talents of silver, to use the biblical phrase, 
and you pray to God, you say, God, look, what you have called me to do, right, the family that you've given me, the, the, the place that you've put me in life, I, to accomplish the things that I believe you want me to do for your kingdom, I think I need 40 talents. Right? It's not wrong to pray that, right, not for selfish motives, but out of a true desire to help and benefit and expand the kingdom of God. But that prayer is always tempered with. It's always, in a sense, overshadowed by the prayer. But your will be done. Help me to be content with whatever you give. Whatever it is. Would you just provide what I need? In poverty, you should be able to be content for daily sustenance. Right? The daily needs that God meets for you. In wealth... You should be content, acknowledging that even with great wealth, if you don't have self-control and the blessing of God on your life, you still won't be happy. You still won't be content. Rich or poor, you're praying that God would teach you moderation and contentment, that he would provide what you need and make you the kind of person that's content with that, that enjoys that, that appreciates that. Contentment doesn't mean that you expect little of God or that you think that God is in some way stingy. He's the kind of God that's always holding back on you. No, it's simply to acknowledge that everything is a gift and then enjoying whatever he chooses to give. Right? Whatever he, in his, in his grace, gives to you, you receive you acknowledge to be from him, and you're happy with him. I'll briefly say, too, that contentment does not mean slothfulness. Right? It's not contentment to be lazy, to sit around with little, to refuse to work hard and apply yourself, to refuse to take responsibility for more. And that's just sloth. That's just laziness. It's not, it's not contentment. God provides through means, through the means of diligence and industry, even in the state of innocence. Right? Even Adam and Eve, before sin entered the world, God provided everything that they would need, and they were told to go and work the garden. Right? They had to go collect the food that was provided. They had to do things, be active and involved. So we're, we're not saying that contentment means just sitting around, right? just waiting for God to just you know, put something in your lap. It just means praying in such a way, having the spirit of one who trusts God, being faithful, actively faithful, but trusting him and what he provides through that. Herman Witsius uh, is helpful here. He says this, he says, the liberty of the gospel does not exempt us from the obligation to toil, it frees believers, indeed, from the kind of distress which is the result of unpardoned guilt and from the bondage of the things of this world, and it restrains us from pursuing them with excessive ardor, but does not remove the, ne the nece necessity of diligence in our calling. We're simply talking about being content, right? Receiving whatever God gives you, whatever it is, and being happy with that. Thirdly, through praying for our daily bread, 
you learn gratitude. Everything that you have and everything that sustains you on the most fundamental level is a gift. It comes from God. We say, give us this day. We acknowledge that it is from Him. And as you pray for that daily sustenance, and as you see God provide again and again, every day He provides again and again, that should produce in you gratitude. In fact, it will, if you're truly praying those, it will produce in you gratitude. A posture of dependence and contentment allows you to be thankful. It puts you in the position of being one that can actually be thankful. If you think that everything that you have is a result of your own grit and determination, that it has nothing to do with anyone else, that it has nothing to do with the provision of God above, then you'll never be thankful. You can't be thankful then. Gratitude, thankfulness always has to be directed outside of you. You can't just be thankful for yourself. You know, thankful to me. Thank you, me, for providing this once again. It doesn't work that way. Thankfulness is always directed outward. If you don't see what you most need day to day being brought to you from outside of you, you'll never be thankful. If you're always, on the other hand, concerned with having more and more, you're discontent, you're trying to keep what you have, it makes you a worried or anxious person, then in this too, you're never going to stop and give thanks for what you have. Right? You're always scrambling to either get or keep. You can never just be grateful for what it is that you have. If you're always coveting what you don't have or bothered that others have more, you're angry with God because you think he's been unfair, he hasn't provided what you think you need, well, then you're never going to be thankful for what he has given. But by recognizing your dependence on God for everything that you have, beginning all the way, going all the way down to the simplest thing that you need, daily food, daily bread. If you recognize your dependence on him for everything, and then being content with what he chooses to give you, then you can actually be thankful for anything and everything that he gives you. This produces gratitude. It produces thankfulness as you truly pray, pray this prayer. Now, having heard all that, having heard uh, God's word, and knowing that at least the vast majority of you do pray this regularly, right? You pray this all the time. We pray it here. I have no doubt that you pray this regularly in your home. Then what I want to do for just the last couple minutes here is I just want to reframe everything we just said and put it into the imperative, right? What is this not just what do we learn from this, but what is this then command of you? What are you called to do from this text? Because I want you to leave knowing clearly what it is that this petition in the Lord's Prayer calls then forth in you. And to put all of this in the imperative, what we've already said, you are called first to recognize your dependence upon God. To recognize your dependence upon God. It's not your effort, it's not your intelligence, it's not your positive mindset, it's not your grind and hustle, it's not your work on self-improvement or mental health, it's not your personality type, 
It is from God that you receive everything that you have, all the way down to your daily bread. He gives the sunshine and the rain. He gives the growth. He gives, and you receive. Once again, it doesn't mean that you're then a passive recipient of that. The larger catechism has a great line uh, when it's explaining what, uh, what it is that, that this petition uh, teaches us. And it says that uh, in praying this petition, we're waiting upon the providence of God from day to day in the lawful use of means or in the use of lawful means. Right? So it's still incumbent upon you to work, to do what God's called you to do, to use lawful means that God has given that he provides through. But all the while you're doing that, you're also praying with a posture of dependence. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. Right? You, you're, you're going to work praying, give us this day our daily bread. Right? Give us what we need. Everything that you have comes from your Father in heaven. You are to recognize that. So you recognize your dependence. Secondly, you're called to be content with what God is pleased to give you. You recognize your dependence and you are to be content. You're to wait upon his providence day to day. And what he chooses to give you, you receive with contentment in your heart. And maybe you think you don't have anything. Right? What he's given me is nothing but, to quote once again from Herman Witsius, when the smallest crumb of bread or a drop of cold water is bestowed by the love of God the Father and of Christ, it becomes inconceivably preferable to all the delicacies of the rich. Right? Anything you have, even if it seems like so little, if it comes by the love of God, then it's preferable to anything else that you could have. And don't you know that God loves you? He does. And in every drop of water, right, in every crumb of bread, in everything that he gives you, and I know he has given you so much more, in all of it, this is his love being made known, being bestowed upon you. He loves you, and his love is shown in the, the fresh, homemade, organic bread that you make from sprouted grain that you raised on your you know, acres of land yourself, and his love is shown in the loaf of wonder bread that you picked up from the store. Right? God has blessed us in so many ways. He's blessed you. I know he's blessed many of you with great wealth. Right? We really are the wealthiest of people in the history of the world. And you become accustomed to a lot, to significant provision. But would you be content if God said that, you know, for this next year, it's just going to be Jif on Wonder Bread? That's it. Could you receive that and give thanks to God that he has provided what you need? To be content would be to receive gladly whatever God in his providence chooses to provide. So recognize your dependence, be content, and out of that, right, out of that posture of dependence, out of being content, you are then called to give thanks. Because God has given to you, so you give back thanks. 
Right? Isn't it amazing how our God provides day after day for more than enough of what we need? Right? His grace, his kindness to us is abundant. And it's all around us all the time. You of all people should be thankful and give thanks. You who have received more abundantly than all the people of the earth, even your very salvation. You who have received both earthly bread and bread from heaven. God has given it all freely. And what he asks of you in return is to be thankful. Right? Just as you teach your children to say thank you, even if they receive something that maybe they're not in a position where they're content with it. You still teach them to say thank you. Well, God does the same with us. And his blessings are manifold. They're abundant. They're overflowing all around you. So give thanks. Right? As you pray, give us this day our daily bread. Let it teach you that everything you have comes from him. And all he asks is that you give thanks back to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we start right there where we ended. We give you thanks. We're so grateful for all that you've provided for us. And we pray that you'd open our eyes. That even today, as we continue in, in worship and in a day set aside for you, that everything we would recognize in ways that we don't usually, we'd recognize how you have given and given and how much we're dependent upon you. That you'd help us in those places in our life where we've been discontent and unhappy and, and not receiving gladly what you've given us, help us rather to trust you and to gladly receive all that you've given. And help us, Lord, to have that most fundamental posture of gratitude in our hearts at all times. We pray, Lord God, give us this day our daily bread. Help us to receive it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.